when people see your launch, they should be able to see that, okay, this launch, this product is specifically for me. This is the thing that's going to solve my problem. I'm going to choose this for, from all the other alternatives because of XYZ reason. And so when I think about a lot of product launches, a lot of times where I think they fall flat is when they don't get specific and they don't have very clear positioning. And like one big one ingredient in that is segmentation. Like who are we for? At an early stage, you want to be uncomfortably specific. And so I have this one example. It's pretty relevant. Hello and welcome to PolyWeb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Jason Oakley, expert product marketer and author of the Productive PMM newsletter. During this conversation, Jason shares his experience in launching successful products, including tons of examples, tips, and practical frameworks that you can apply for guaranteed success. So please enjoy this episode. Jason, welcome to PolyWeb. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, Jason, maybe for for listeners who are not so familiar with the concept of product marketing, can you tell us yep. a bit more about what product marketing is, what are the main area of expertise, and how is it different from normal marketing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that you know, there are, there is product marketing, which at the end of the, there are pro, is product marketing and then there are product marketers. And I think that there are a lot of marketers who do product, product marketing. And I especially think at startups, a lot of your listeners, probably even founders have to do product marketing. But then as you start to, you know, your, your startup becomes larger, as you start to build out your marketing team, you'll want dedicated product marketers. And so all that's to say is product marketing, I think is the in a lot of cases, the original form of marketing, like when you think one way to think about product marketing, it is getting the right product to the right audience with the right message. And so to break that down, it's kind of understanding your audience, like knowing specifically who this product is built for. So being specific about segmentation and targeting within that, it's knowing and building the right product for that audience to solve their problem. So it's really understanding your customer really understanding their pains and the outcomes they're looking for and being able to build the right product for that, specifically for that buyer. And then with the right message, that's where positioning and messaging comes into play. So how do you position your product so that it is in their minds, the best, most differentiated solution to solve that problem and, and kind of the natural one that they're going to buy. And so positioning, messaging, how do you describe the value of your product? So all of that is kind of product marketing in a, in a nutshell. But when you think about it within a company, more tactically, product marketing within a company, and there's kind of four things. One is research intelligence. So <clears throat> understanding voice of the customer, understanding your market, understanding your competitors. Then there's the positioning aspect. So a lot of what I talked there about understanding how to position your product, what your messaging should be. Then there's launch, which is how do you bring new products to market? What, how do you, what is your go-to-market for your product? And then there's enablement which is especially as you start to get a larger company, how does your product marketer enable a sales team? How do you enable go-to-market teams so that everyone can tell the same story, sell effectively, things like that? Okay. Thank you for, for this overview. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's really helpful, actually, because we all start then from the same page, right? From, with the same understanding. So maybe 
a good place to take this conversation is actually to start talking about product launches. What are the ingredients of a good product launch? And what should listeners uh, know that can help set them up for success when when they launch a product? Whew. Well, so a big question. So product launches, I think, and especially for a lot of people who might be your listeners who might be launching a brand, like their first product, like a new thing to the market, especially as a you know an entrepreneur, like a solo founder or a small team. There's a lot that goes into that. And then when you get into larger companies or more established a business that has an established product, a product launch could mean launching new features. It could be launching new products on top of that. So a product launch can mean many different things. But I think when I think of a few key ingredients, and you know, there's a couple of examples of things that I can talk about here as well. But when I think of key ingredients for a launch, like one is to, I always think a launch should start with understanding like doing the research side. So understanding your audience, understanding your the competitive landscape, like understanding your buyer. And so I think a lot of launches need to start with that research aspect to understand like, are you making the right product for the right audience, right? Are you, do, you have, do you know how to position it effectively so that your launch is going to resonate with that audience? So I think there's like a research aspect. And we actually are right now teaching a, a course on product launches. So I'm kind of like going through the syllabus of the course. But then I think that there's the strategy aspect, which is really thinking about being clear on your audiences, on your segmentation. Like when you're going out with this launch, who are you talking to and being clear? And a lot of times I think people try to speak to everybody with their launch versus being very specific. And I think too, like for most of your listeners who are probably startup founders, right? Or, or people with inside like a small startup, you don't need to speak to a massive audience right away. So being very clear on your audience, being clear on your positioning, and things like pricing, you need to figure out all those things with a launch. And a lot of that is like the lead up there is more the strategy side. It's like understanding our market, understanding the competitive landscape. Where can we fit in? Who do we need to speak to the most? Like who is our target audience? Where do we fit? And where are we differentiated? And then how do we describe that? Like what is our positioning and how do we describe that in positioning and messaging? And then the other aspects of a launch are going to be more tactical. It's like, how do you execute on this launch? So that is starting to think about how you go about tiering launches, right? How If you're in a, a larger company, it's like, how do you prioritize launches? How do you make it so that you're not just overwhelming the market with every little thing you're adding to your product and be strategic about, about that? And then, you know, when you figure out how you go about prioritizing and approaching your launches, it's the tactically, like, how do you bring that together into a launch plan? How do you coordinate internal teams and actually get things done for a launch? And then how do you enable people? So that when it's time to launch, everyone in your company is telling the same story. They've got the tools, the assets, the content they need, right? They're ready for your launch. And then how do you execute on launch day and beyond? So there's a lot to it. And it kind of leads me. And I know one thing I was going to talk about a bit was the difference between like releases and launches, but I'll just pass it back to you because you might have yeah, some follow up. So. I think, so I would love to unpack uh, one by one the main concepts that you just highlight. But I think yep. like a, a good place to start is exactly the difference between product launches and releases instead. Yeah. This is something that, for example, as a product manager, I also struggle with, you know. So right. I think that maybe it's helpful to clarify that. And if you can do that with a few examples so that, you know, we're all on the same page. 
And then uh, we can move forward and talk about uh, all the other elements that you mentioned, such as positioning, messaging, pricing. Let's do it. Okay. For, so for listeners uh, that are that are listening actually to this episode as a podcast, uh, um, Jason is now sharing his screen. So if you want yep. to jump into the YouTube video, now would be a good moment. Otherwise, we're we will try to be as descriptive as possible. Yeah, I'll do my best. So can you see my screen right now? I have a couple of slides up. Awesome. So what I have right now, so a couple of other product marketers and I, we actually just started a, a cohort-based course. It's called Ready for Launch. And it's all about teaching product marketers how to do product launches. And so what I'm actually here is pre I'm presenting a couple of slides from that, that course. And I actually presented this yesterday in our first cohort. So really what's on the screen right now is just two different images. One is to represent this concept of releases. The other is actually Steve Jobs announcing the iPhone representing a launch. And I think that there are two very different things. And I think a lot of times they can get confused or lumped together. And you see in a lot of, a lot of like startups and a lot of SaaS companies, this idea of, of thinking when a product is released or a feature is released, it's automatically assumed that a launch is going to go with it right away. Right? The two are almost interchangeable. And in reality, releases are more of like a product and engineering term. That means you're pushing code to production. Like you're putting a feature live in your product. You're putting a new product live available for people to use. The idea with a launch, though, is that it's more of a go-to-market event that's delivering value for your customers and your business. So you could have a product that's live, but if customers don't know it exists, <laughs> if they don't know how to use it, they don't know what it's for, right? If they don't know the value of it, they're not going to be able to use it and get value from it. Same thing for your business. If you don't get that product out in front of your audience, if you don't position it, right, describe the value of it so that people want to buy it and give you money for it, then you're not going to drive any value for your business. So as product marketers, we are really focused on this launch aspect of making sure that we are getting these products to market in a way that's going to drive value for the customers in the business. And so another way to illustrate this too is when you think of a company, you know, startups could be releasing things all the time. Like you could have... You could have multiple releases in a month, in a quarter, throughout a year, you could have a lot. And the first thing to recognize is like, not every release needs a launch. So you could be releasing things in your product, but if you gave the same amount of effort, if you had a launch for every new thing that you released, eventually your audience would just become numb to it. They wouldn't listen. It wouldn't have any impact. And so when you have those really important ones, ones that are going to drive a lot of new users or drive a lot of, you know, great, a lot more adoption within your existing user base, they're just not going to hear it. The other thing to know is that launches can be delayed. So you could have something that's released in your product in March. You could wait until April, May, June to launch it. It doesn't need to happen one, like one after the other or at the same time. It totally can, and that's fine, but it just doesn't have to. The other thing is that launches can be bundled. So one thing I think a lot of people don't think about is this idea of you could have three, four features that you release into your product, but you wait so that you could bundle them together into a bigger story, a bigger narrative, so that when you launch them, they're way more impactful and they, they drive a lot more value for your business because you know one feature alone might not compel people to buy, but when you bring them together into a compelling story, it might. So an example of that would be Canva and they launched Magic Studio. So I'm a Canva user. I was noticing certain features pop up in the app, you know, like a month or more before they launched Magic Studio. And I, you know, I was kind of playing with those and I don't recall a lot of marketing around them. But then when they launched Magic Studio, 
all of that came together into one big story. And they talked about like 20 different features that had, you know, drip, dripped out over time, but now they packaged them up into this one big platform change that I know would drive a lot of impact for their business. So you can definitely launch a bundle launches. And then another thing is that not all launches are the same priority. So some launches are bigger than others. And again, that just goes to knowing where you want to drive the most impact from specific launches. And it's not just a, you know, that it, it's not just a workload balance sort of thing. Like you can't do big launches every month. It's just not possible. So it's also knowing that, yes, you could have, you can manage a couple of smaller launches in a month, but only one big one in a quarter. So it allows you to, yes, manage your workload and make sure you're not overwhelmed with launch work. But at the same time, it's also going to make sure that the big ones get noticed as the big ones because they're the ones that will drive the most impact. So to just illustrate a couple of examples here, like I, I keep a swipe file, so I have a lot of examples. And my newsletter, PMM Files, is like typically where I share a lot of these examples. But here's a, an email from Gumroad. So it's, it's just a very simple, my idea, this is like releases. These are, this is release marketing. And so the email is called tons of new Gumroad features. It's great. It, it really doesn't have an overall kind of theme to it. It's literally just a roundup of new things that they released over a period of time. And you see this all the time. It could be a newsletter that goes out to your customers once a month or a quarter. And it's like, here's all the new things. And I would consider this more release marketing. Whereas when you think of launches, for example, right, you look at something like this. This is a video that was uh, a video from Vimeo, right? When they launched a new, like a whole new AI powered creation suite within their platform. And this is their founder. And this is a, a post they made on LinkedIn. But Something like this is an example of a big launch. This was, you know, hopping on the trend of AI. It was a big, a big change to their product, a big new value add. And for them, the point of this was this was going to drive a lot more users. It was going to drive a lot of uh, hopefully greater adoption in their existing user base. So example here of a big launch, another here from uh, a company called Pendo, where this is a, a new feature on top of their existing product called Pendo Replay. But also another example here from someone who's more of an early stage startup founder. So this is Ollie Gardner, and he just launched this company called Pressflow. And it's a, a, a platform for creating great outlines for your keynote presentations. This is like a platform for professional presenters. Anyways, it's for him, he launched this. He's a, a kind of a solo founder from what I can gather. And for him, he was launching this to the market for the first time. So just a, a couple of things just to distinguish between more releases versus actual launches. That's absolutely awesome. And I love all those examples. I have like some question regarding still releases uh, and launch. So, okay, when you have like big launches, like, you know, when you mentioned Canva, the magic AI features that they launched, they bundled them together, you know, it made sense right? But sometimes it's not so obvious. So at what point uh, do you decide that you have enough for launches? Or should you announce uh, every functional release if you don't have like a big strategy around, okay, this is all part of a package, you know? Sure. And I, I think that comes into the this concept of launch tiering and prioritization of your launches. So Magic Studio with Canva, that's what we call a you know, tier one launch. It's top priority launch. And there's a lot that goes into that. There's multiple multiple features that are bundled. 
right? It's a very strategic launch and there's a theme to it. But you could still have a, what I would call maybe like a tier three launch for a specific feature. So it's not like you always need to bundle things together. Right? My time at Clue or at Chili Piper, we had features sometimes that was just, it was a standalone feature, but it was still big enough that we wanted to talk about it. So sometimes you just don't have like, if there is not a theme, like if they don't come together in a natural theme, then I don't think you should really, then you shouldn't bring them together in term, in, in a launch, right? Like they shouldn't come together to be a, a larger launch unless you're at a company, I don't know, like Salesforce, for example, who is has a very structured launch schedule where it's like every quarter we put out the new Salesforce or like the latest and greatest of Salesforce. And then they try to find themes that they can latch onto, but I'm sure there are also still features that just get it released that don't get talked about in those. That's why you do launch prioritization. That's why you tier your launches so that even though you might have a small feature that is, is worth talking about, you don't need to bundle it with other things. You can just launch it on its own. It'd be a tier three launch or what have you. And, and it's just something a bit smaller that you put less effort behind. Can I ask you something? How, when you think about a product strategy, you know, and what, where you're going to do, where you're going to build, at what point do you advise start thinking about the launch of the product itself in, you know, in the yeah. crafting of the product strategy? Because it strikes me, as you, as you say it, that it should be basically at the beginning, but it's something that mostly product managers start to think about uh, as they build the product. Yeah instead of uh, right when you're writing the strategy and you're still in the discovery phase? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I'm going to pull up a post I made a little while back because I created a visual. It's just a good kind of backdrop for this. Okay. Loving the visuals. <laughs> okay, so let me share my screen here. There it is. So... It's a really good question. And I think a lot of times most product teams and marketing teams or product marketing teams, it's usually like a baton pass. So it, product will start early doing, you know, the, they have an idea that comes from the voice of the customer. They start to do their exploration into that and understanding the problem space. And then they do discovery to try to scope out a product. A lot of times they don't loop in marketing or product marketing until they're, they're ready to release it. And so it's usually a baton pass. And so it's, you know, product marketing comes in, they're like, here, here it is, we're going to launch it in a week. We need, we need this, we need a marketing plan for this sort of thing. And so I think that that's, obviously that's not ideal. It's the reality for a lot of small companies, I think. But where you want things to happen is you want product marketing to get involved earlier. And so there is, I posted this on LinkedIn that created this visual. And I think there's a lot of like differing opinions here as well. People saying, hey, product marketing needs to be involved in the ideation as well and listening to voice of the customer. And that's all true too, I think. Like I think product marketing and product should be working together in lockstep. Like I think they're two very like complementary functions. And I think that both are listening to the customer. You know, product marketing is bringing insights from, from sales conversations, right? Like they're talking to customers a lot and they're talking to the market. Like they understand the competitive landscape. They understand what's happening in the market. They're involved in a lot of sales conversations and, and interacting with sales reps a lot more often than product is. And you get a lot of good product intel from that. And so I think that both should be coming together to, to come up with like, what should we have on the roadmap? But let's just assume that there is a, a product idea that is, you know, product managers starting to explore. I think that 
the product marketer should come in as they're doing that discovery to help with research around the market, the buyer, the competitive landscape, so that they can start doing the strategy part of it, of like developing positioning and, and re really trying to figure out who is we, who is the what is the best segment to or audience to target this at earlier. So that when it comes to release day, it's not a, oh, we got to scramble to get all this done. It's more of, okay, we're ready now. Everyone's been enabled internally and we're ready to go for this launch. And that way you can be more, you, you can just be more strategic and, and just execute better on launches and get more out of them versus a scramble just to, just to put some marketing behind a, a new product launch that product marketing is, hasn't really been involved in. Speaking of uh, one of the key component of launching a product and forming a strategy around this product uh, rely on the concept of positioning and segmenting your users to really understand them. So can you talk maybe more about that and how listeners, whether they are founders, marketers, or product managers, should think about positioning and segmentation. First of all, what's the difference? Let's start there. I, I don't actually know if, there, if it's that there's a difference in that I think segmentation is a part of positioning. Okay. So I think when you think about positioning, and there's a lot of experts on positioning, you know, shout out to like April Dunford, Anthony Pieri. There's a lot of good people who are product marketing positioning experts. Rob Kaminsky too works with Anthony, Anthony and him together. And, and I just think that there's, yeah, there's so much great content out there on positioning. So I encourage people to check out those folks. But when you think about positioning, it is really making sure that like segmentation is the whole part of positioning, which is understanding who your best fit customer is. And so knowing that for this particular buyer who has this very particular challenge, we are the best product to solve that problem better than all the other alternatives for XYZ reason. So it's it's like for a very specific buyer who has a very specific problem, our product is best positioned to solve that problem and provide this like outcome that they're looking for because we are differentiated in some way from all the other alternatives out there. So it's almost like ingredients that go into positioning. Right? And so those ingredients are things like knowing who you're, like what segment you are targeting, knowing what problems they have, knowing the other alternatives that are out there, knowing what your differentiated value or your differentiated capabilities are, like what can your product do that theirs can't, or you know, what do you offer that they can't? And then what's the, the value that someone gets from that? So it's almost like these are ingredients that come into your positioning. So it's, it's all, I got a, a, I'll share a slide here. There's a couple of things I'll, I'll talk about. So the, what I'm showing here is just a, a simple slide from our course as well. If anyone's interested in checking out this course it's called Ready for Launch, you can check it out on Maven. But it's, it's just a slide here that one of my, my partner in creating this course, her name's Tamara, one of, one of the course creators with me. It, it, it basically is just a, a take on a, a quote that was built by a content marketer, but it's, it basically says the only way to win at product launches is for the customer to say, this was built specifically for me. And I think it's a really good spin on a, a quote originally by Jamie Turner, who's more of a content expert, but it's, it's this idea of like when people see your launch, they should know that be able to see that, okay, this launch, this product is specifically for me. This is the thing that's going to solve my problem. I'm going to choose this for, from all the other alternatives because of XYZ reason. Um, and so when I think about a lot of product launches, a lot of times where I think they fall flat is when they don't get specific and they don't have very clear positioning. And 
And like one big one ingredient in that is segmentation. Like who are we for? And so I have this one example. It's pretty relevant. Everyone's seen the AI pin or if you haven't, just Google AI pin. So this company, Humane, just recently launched it. It was available for pre-order, but it looks like it's fully launched now that you can order it. But I remember it was just last week and I, I saw this one morning I woke up and I know this is like their launch will be successful. They'll have a lot of people who buy this product just because it has a lot of hype. But I remember we watched like the first two, three minutes of the video and my wife was next to me in bed and she was like, what is this? I have no idea what this, how do you use this? What is this for? And they're very ambiguous around who uses this. What is this for? Later on in the video, they start talking about technical features and kind of talk a little bit about like the use cases for them. But you really, it takes a while, it takes a bit of effort for you to figure out like, is this product for me? Like, how would I use this thing? And they, they had a 10 minute demo video, like this video here, if you click on it, you'll watch that. And it's very interesting. And it was, it, you know, part of me wonders, is that part of their strategy to make it ambiguous? And it's more focused on early adopters who kind of just get it. And the intrigue of not really knowing what it is will make you watch it. So maybe there's some of that, but I still think at the end of the day, it's very ambiguous. But one thing I noticed just doing a bit of, because I talked about this in my newsletter, but I found this other video. So if you click on this video here, it's like a film that they created. And I found this film was great because what it did was actually showed real people using their product in real situations. Woman trying to shop, guy trying to speak in a different language. Right? So there's, it's more practical and like I could see right away. And this was in a minute. So I, I, I always like, I thought to myself, like, it'd be great if when they had that demo video, uh, it was 10 minutes, if they had started it with this one minute video, that was just very quickly, I, I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Tell me how it works. <laughs> so then they could get into that demo video. I thought that would have been a lot smarter. So to me, that's like an example of a launch that I thought in a sense, like that, what was around their original launch video, their original launch, I thought it was pretty ambiguous and the positioning wasn't great. Whereas I look at something like, Here's, sorry, question there. Why do you think is that, you know, like, do you think that that's on purpose, that position is really big or? Do I think, yeah, like, I I don't know. I don't know. I thought if any, like, I thought maybe, like, it could be that they're trying to be more, not give it all away, like a bit of make it ambiguous on purpose. But sometimes I just think that a lot of product marketers, a lot of marketers, just over-index on the technical capabilities of their product. Like they just think their product, they're so focused on features and technical functionality that they don't take the time to step back and think of, think of it in more of the lens of that second video that I showed you of like, who is this for? How can we show them how to use this product in normal everyday settings? Like what are the use cases for this? What's the value of this? It's like, oh, the value of the live translator is that you could be at, lunch with people who speak different languages and have a totally normal conversation with them or somewhat normal. Right. And so it's sometimes I feel like that is missed, but I think they do a great job of it in this video. Yeah. Maybe like I'm skipping ahead several steps. So so feel free to, you know, go to answer this question in your own time. But I wonder how would you, would you have approached the positioning of the humane AI pin instead? Yeah, I th- I think that 
I think that they might have, they might know the, like they might know it, like they might know that this is our ideal buyer. This is, these are the, the use cases for the product. I think they just didn't communicate it that well in what I saw in their original launch, that original launch video. So my recommendation there was, why don't you take what's in this first video, right? This one that what seems to have come out a little bit later and bring this in as part of the that original demo and like the, the, what it seemed to be what they put out on launch day. So that was my, my thought there. It's like, don't, what I originally found on launch day was that 10 minute demo video that a lot of people were like, what is this thing? Whereas if they had a lead with this, even as, as the first section of that video, I, I think it would have just been a lot clearer. So that would be my main recommendation. It sounds like they know, it sounds like they probably have pretty clear positioning um, and they pretty, a pretty clear product messaging around like, yeah, what I've talked about, but it, I just think it's, it was missing on that original launch day in terms of how they, yeah, how they brought it to market. Okay. Yeah. Talking about positioning, how should listeners go about positioning their products? What are like helpful frameworks or, or, or things that they should think about when they're trying to position their product. Yeah. Now there are, I'd mentioned some names before there, like a couple of things you should check out. Three people I would always encourage you to check out on LinkedIn is April Dunford, Anthony Pieri, Rob Kaminsky. They have a, April has obviously awesome, which is a great book. Anthony and Rob always share really great frameworks around positioning. So a lot of what I use today when I'm working with some of my clients and things like that is based off everything I've learned from them and what I've learned through my career as well. But I, I have a very simple like spreadsheet version of this. Now you could have things that are a little more visual, a little more workshops that you might build in Figma and all of that. But I'll walk you through like the typical ingredients that you would have when you're thinking through positioning. And the first thing is understanding your segments that you're targeting. So a segment is a combination of, of understanding what type of company, like what types of businesses, if you're a B2B product, if you're a B2C, then it's really understanding what are the, the people, the personas that you're targeting. But when I think of target segment in B2B software, it is a combination of the company and the primary buyer. So, you know, an example here for a company that I just used an example called Bug Herd, which is almost a, it's a way to give live on page feedback on a web design. So knowing that, okay, a segment for us might be web development agencies under a certain size. And in particular, we're targeting the web developer in those types of companies. So that could be one segment that your product is built for. And so you could have multiple of these. If you have a product like Notion, for example, you could have all kinds of segments because your product is so horizontal and so many different ways people could use it and different people who could use it. For each one of those segments, they typically have a primary job to be done like thing that they're using your product for. So within that segment, you might have a job to be done, which is is typically structured in a way of saying situation, problem, desired outcome, situation, problem, motivation, desired outcome. So I like to think of it as situation is when we launch a, you're basically trying to say when we do X, so in this type of situation, I struggle with this. So it's impossible to keep track of feedback bugs and updates when I'm trying to launch a new website for a client. Feedback is also vague. I often don't know what feature or section they're referring to. So that's the challenge of the struggle they have. The motivation is I want to. So I want a better way to gather client feedback, see it all in one place, know exactly what part of the page they're referring to. 
so that I can spend less time responding to bugs and more time on new client projects. So just as I, I'm, if product managers are watching this, I'm sure they're familiar with jobs to be done framework. And so you're really trying to understand for that segment, what is their job to be done? Also with a segment, you need to understand competing alternatives and they could be other products that exist, but it could also just be status quo, which might be a spreadsheet. A lot of times a spreadsheet or a Word document, it could be, it is the, the main competitor for a lot of products. So in this case, you want to think through your competing alternatives. What product category do they fall into? What are their weaknesses? Where are you differentiated? And what is the benefit of those differentiation, like those differentiated capabilities? So that being, you know, it, you could have benefits to your product, but what are the differentiated benefits of your product? And, and from that, you'll end up with a number of different segments, but then you could start to rank those. You could start to think about, okay, which segments are like, what are our top segments? So you might launch a product like the AI pin instead of saying this product's built for everyone, especially when you launch, if you're an early stage startup launching for the first time, it's like be specific about who your product is for so that you can get traction right away because you've built your positioning it and your messaging is all targeted on one specific segment. So you could score them in a way that allows you to pick which segment is most important for you. What would be a good scoring criteria? Like, what would you use? Yeah, like some of the questions would be like, and again, sorry, apologies for people who are just listening on a podcast, but some of the ranking factors when you're trying to score your segments would be things like, how well does your product address their job to be done? So for you know your first segment, it's, yeah, this is a decent job at that. Whereas one, you're like, yes, this is tailor-made for that specific job to be done. Another one could be how underserved are they, right? Or, or like how crowded is that market? So if there's a lot of alternatives there, if there's a lot of solutions to that problem, might not be as strong as somewhere where people are starving for it. Like if you go into a, a you know, if you're building software and you go into an industry that's very archaic and they don't have a lot of technical solutions in there, then people are probably very underserved. How differentiated are you in the segment? So again, you might be in one segment where everyone has a lot of, very competitive and there's a lot of people with parity of your product. You might have another segment where, hey, there's no one here doing this and we are, we are very differentiated. How big it is, how easy it is for you to reach, right? So you might have a very a simple example of this is I've been helping someone with research lately and they've been looking into things like you know, fleet management and, and certain industries where it's really easy to find data, right? I, when I worked at my first company I worked for, which was like an anti-fraud, anti-money laundering company, they sold to banks and credit unions. It's very easy to find them. It's very easy to know how large they are. And it's very easy to find the contact information of the person that you need to contact. And so that might be a very compelling segment for you versus some, there are some segments out there that are almost impossible to find and get in, get into a certain part of that, basically find your buyer. And so this idea of like, how easy it to, is it to reach them? How easy is it to acquire? And then when you get those customers, how sticky are they? So if you're operating today, if you have customers, which segments stick around the longest, get the most value out of your product and, and churn less? So those are a couple of things. And then there would just be typically like once you figure out for your segment, then you would start to really think about what are the key features and capabilities that we want to highlight for that particular segment. So if you're building out a landing page, for example, you would start to think about, okay, what features do we want to hit on? Which ones are most differentiated? 
what are the benefits of those and the proof that we might have from existing customers. So that's kind of the framework there. Love it. Uh, can we make this template available for listeners and leave it in the show notes uh, and in the YouTube descriptions? Sure. Yeah, I'll share it after you can share it up. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. I wonder, do you have more examples of uh, successful or unsuccessful or not so clear, let's say, product positioning? Hmm. I'll, I'll share a couple of no more unclear examples. I'll share a couple of good ones, ones that I like. Or actually, no, I do have a, another example of one. But here is, here's an example from a company called Keyplay. This is their founder, Adam Schoenfeld. And what I really liked about this launch was that they were launching an integration with, so their product is a, a B2B data platform. So it kind of competes with things like uh, Clearbit or let's say like Clearbit, for example, would be a competitor here. So for them, they launched this HubSpot integration. And when they went out, their messaging was very focused on, and I'll read it out for you here for anyone watching, but this is like a LinkedIn post that he had posted about it. Other ABM vendors neglect HubSpot users. So they're really being specific about pointing out that almost like picking a fight with other vendors and, and really pointing out that other vendors neglect. So the other competitors out there neglect people like you, Mr. or Mrs. HubSpot user. They prioritize Salesforce customers. So people who are on Salesforce CRM versus HubSpot CRM who pay a lot of money and have large revenue ops teams. Those conditions are perfect for their overly complex products six-month implementation cycles, and monster prices. So he's basically using this as a way to say, all the other solutions you're considering don't prioritize you. They're way more money. They're way more complex. They prioritize Salesforce people, not you. And so now he's saying, Key Play is coming in to fill that gap. We're prioritizing underserved HubSpot CRM users. So I thought this was great because if you're a HubSpot CRM user and you're looking at this, you're like, yeah, that's right. Everyone is too expensive and they don't care about HubSpot CRM. So this one is the natural choice for us if we want to get a, bit, a data platform that'll help us with ABM. So this is very specific, right? So you went yep. like directly and very clearly after a specific niche, right? So how do you think about, about this dichotomy between targeting, trying to target as many people as possible, as opposed to niching down to a very, very specific niche, you know, because like my yeah. fear will be, I'm going to miss out on, on sales. I'm going to miss out on adoption because I'm so specific in my messaging. I think it's a pretty natural fear. I think you know, understanding who typically would listen to this podcast or watch this video, you are probably at a, a SaaS startup. You are probably, you know, a founder who is trying to get your product off the ground. I think the more specific you can be, the better. Sure, there is going to be, you're going to feel like you should not be, like you don't want to miss out on potential revenue, right? You, or maybe you don't know your, your segment, right? You don't have clear understanding of who your best fit, you know, ideal customer is. And so sometimes you want to go out and if you are very early stages, you want to, you don't want to be that specific just so that you can get some in the door and really get a, a sense of you're still trying to find product market fit or you're still, still trying to figure things out. And I think that maybe there'll be a sum of that, but even then I would still want to be clear with 
you know, say for example, you knew there was five potential segments that you could go after. I would still want to create five specific landing pages where I could be very clear on why this product was the best solution for them. And when I do my cold outreach, which when you're at that stage, it's mostly cold outreach you're going to do anyways, you would just be going to them and you would say, Hey, like we have a product that's built for you. Here's what it can do. Here's a landing page to learn more. Like you would, it would be more high touch anyways. So I think that though, you know, when you're thinking about your landing page, if you put out something and it's very vague, it's not going to do, it's not going to be effective. And so I, I think that, you know, a lot of people say you want to, at an early stage, you want to be uncomfortably specific. As long as you know that that market, that very specific niche is large enough to support your growth goals and your, you, know, you want to get to a million dollars within the next year. If you can do that with one specific segment and you're going to be more effective by being very focused on that segment, why wouldn't you? Versus casting a very wide net you, your conversion rates will be a lot lower because people just aren't, you're not as clear about why they should choose your product and that it's built for them. So that'd be my, my thought there. Okay. Clear. Like the follow-up question will be once you understand that you're a fit uh, with a certain segment, how soon should you think about target, starting targeting the next one and the next one? So when is the right moment? I guess that's what I'm asking. I think it's a good, it's a good question. I think it, it probably varies. I think, you know, if you're a larger, when you get to a point where as a company you have, so say for example, you're at, you know, you're under a million dollars in revenue. I don't think you need to be targeting multiple segments under $10 million in revenue. You probably don't need to be targeting multiple segments. When you get to a stage where you're like, our growth goals cannot be supported by the addressable market that we have here within this segment. And that's probably where you need to start looking at, okay, how do we expand into new segments? So in my last company, we were looking, starting to look at how do we expand into other verticals, other market segments. And at the time we were getting inbounds from these segments. So we were getting companies that were coming in being like, we want to use your product. We're in this market. It wasn't an ideal fit for that market. But in a lot of those cases, we were still accepting those opportunities, having those conversations. And, you know, you'd notice larger churn, you would notice those things, but it was also an exercise to understand those markets better too. And so when we decided that, okay, well, we have aggressive growth goals for the next year, you start to do your, your planning for the, the future, right? You start to do your 2024 planning, for example, then you do an ex you, you go through the exercise of figuring out, okay, where do we want to place our bet next year? What other segment do we want to expand into so that we can hit our growth goals? Mm, thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful. Okay. So moving uh, from positioning to like starting to craft your message, you know, how yep. how does the position translate into the messaging? Because that's like a key part. We've seen that. Can you can you help us maybe through through this process and understanding how can I effectively communicate my product to my users? Yeah, I think the so to go back to the spreadsheet for example, when you're thinking about product messaging. I really like, and I, and I got this, you know, Anthony Pierre and Rob Kaminsky always talk about this idea of a difference between features and capabilities, but this thought of when you're thinking about product messaging, specifically how to describe your product, the value of your product, 
in a lot of cases, it's it's helping people understand what your product is too. Going back to the humane example, it's like, what is this thing, right? So when people come to your website, very quickly, you should prioritize making sure that they know what your product is, right? So what is it? How will they use it? And what's the value of it? So when I think about product messaging, you can start with features, right? Features are more of a, what is the name of this feature in your product, right? But the capability is, what does it allow your product, your customers to do? What what ability does it give them? What capability does it, you know, empower them to, to do? So saying, for example, you know, point and click interface to provide feedback on any web page. Cool. The capability here is it's easy for clients to give specific website feedback with all of the context a developer needs. The benefit of that would be something like less back and forth questions and clarification. Developers can address issues quicker and spend more time on project work. And then the proof of that. So when I'm thinking about product messaging, that's kind of like the ingredients there. But even earlier than that, it's it's like, what is, what should the messaging be? And so I think that a lot of times, you know, figuring out what, how to describe your product, the messaging for it, like where you can look for that is a, one is just talking to customers. So if you're building out a product and you're trying to figure out like, how should we describe this product? What features should we really highlight? Or what is the benefit of this? The best way to do that is to talk to potential customers or customers. And so earlier than that too, if you're trying to figure out like, what are the pains when you're figuring out things like jobs to be done, doing those jobs to be done interviews, which there are a number of great people who focus on those as well. There's one template that I could share as well. Just ping me after and I'll share it. But it's like, how do you approach these interviews to really pull as much as you can out from your potential customers? Or again, if you have an early product and you're building something new from it, your existing customers. And so from that, you're going to get a lot of, I, I love the idea of taking quotes from customers. And if you can use that in your messaging, not as necessarily a quote or a testimonial, but I just mean from their words, to describe your product or the problem it solves or the, the, the benefit of it, that's ideal. If you have an existing product and you use, say, for example, things like G2 or this go, G2, or you use uh, TrustRadius or you, you have a launch on Product Hunt or all kinds of different review platforms, those are a great place to go too so that you can see how people describe your product in their own words. Or for example, if you have recorded calls, if your company uses something like Gong or you have just recorded customer interviews, going back through the transcripts. And now with AI, it's really easy to kind of mine these things and ask AI to summarize it for you. This is a really interesting tool, a company called Senja. They're basically a testimonial platform that makes it easier to easy to capture testimonials and embed them on your website. And so they created this really simple a tool where you can take, say, a link to your G2 page, paste it in here, and then they'll automatically generate a summary of what people like about your platform, what they don't like, and areas you can improve. So it's a really, it's a neat, it's a very cool tool because what that gives you is like a s- idea of what people really like about your platform, but also how they describe it. And so things like this can be helpful to give you ideas of what should we focus on? How should we describe this? So that when you're starting to create messaging for your launch or for your product in general, you've got somewhere to start. And when you're trying to validate messaging, because you know, if you're trying to figure out, if you're a small startup and you're trying to figure out, do we have the right messaging? So a couple of things that could work is if you have existing customers or an advisory board or things like that, you could put your messaging in front of them 
Now there's obviously like some bias you could, you could have there because the people who know your product already or don't want to say something bad about it. You could also just put it out there. So a lot of times people will, great way to test an early product is just put it out there. It's a great way to test pricing. It's a great way to, if you can afford to get it out there and test and iterate, that's probably your best bet. But also there's tools like Winter, for example. And so this is Winter and they basically allow you to test your messaging against a panel. So they allow you to, they have a number of different B2B audiences. You can uh, put messaging, a landing page in front of them and they'll give you qualitative feedback. Tell you what they think of it, how clear it is, how compelling it is, things like that. So that when you go to market with your messaging, a new landing page, a new homepage, you can first have some data to back up that, oh, this is actually, sorry, this is actually resonating with people. This is awesome. I wish I knew about winter like a couple of years ago, maybe. <laughs> Would have come really, really handy to test the messaging when... When I was launching a SaaS. Speaking of launching a product itself, what are the best tactics that you can use to launch the product itself and to generate hype around mm. it? Yeah. So the a lot of product launches, I guess where they they fall flat or they, they don't, yeah, they're not as effective as when they're kind of like a one and done. And so you launch on launch day, goes out. There's not a lot of lead up. There's not much that happens afterwards. And so I love the idea of more rolling thunder. So this idea of, you know, how do you keep the drumbeat? How do you create hype leading up to your launch, but then also keep things, basically keep it relevant and keep reminding people after your launch so that you can yeah, get the, the, the most impact out of it. Because your launch is a lot of goals, if you're launching on product hunt, like you might have a very clear goal for that day where you want to get to number one on product hunt. But in most cases, you have goals that are stretching out beyond that. So within the first 90 days, we want to hit this revenue number or this adoption number or this many new signups. And so you, you need to do more than just one big lightning strike on launch day to hit those goals. And so you want to keep, keep things rolling. Like you want things like having events and webinars after your launch day dripping out case studies and social proof as people start to use your product, keeping a very consistent you know, schedule and drumbeat on social so you can keep reminding people. One good example of that is you can see here with Magic Studio, with, it, with their launch, they yes, they had it on launch day. There was a big, like even leading up, I could start to see things in the product. They, they notified you that there was a launch event happening soon. And so you could sign up and register for that. But then on launch day, obviously a lot around that on launch day. But then even after that, for weeks after, I'm still seeing it and getting emails from them that are highlighting specific parts of Magic Studio and continuing to promote the platform. So a good example of, of keeping that drumbeat and continuously talking about it. And you're constantly learning and iterating on it too. So you're constantly changing your messaging and learning from what you're hearing from sales or from users and changing things up. And so there's a lot of things you can do to keep the thunder rolling. And a couple of examples here, this is a cool one of just like creating hype around a product before you launched it. So this is a product called Chameleon is the main platform, but they launched a, call it a sidecar product, like a new freemium product on top of their platform called Help Bar. But a week before they launched it, Polkit, who's their, one of their co-founders, he just quietly announced, we, we've quietly released a free plan, big launch next week. 
So they, if you were on their website, on their pricing page, they now had this free plan. It was called Help Bar, not a ton of explanation, but it was just to like hint at it and generate some hype. And so, you know, allowed people to sign up for an account if they wanted to. But yeah, this generated quite a bit of hype. And then a week later, they launched Help Bar, very clear on who it was for, the value of it. It was very, in my opinion, a pretty successful launch. And they did a great job of generating hype. So this other one, this last one I'll talk about here is Passion Fruit. So I've noticed they've been doing a lot over this launch of what they call Discovery. So I'm a user of Passion Fruit. I use it for my newsletter. And you... As a user, I started to get these emails about this new discovery product probably a month or two ago. Like I've known about it for a while, but at the same time, it wasn't something they were promoting, but they were hinting at an upcoming launch of it. So on social media, like on on LinkedIn, for example, originally they were calling it passion fruit for partners. They started to hint at it with a post like this. Then they started to say, it all starts with the discovery hinting at November 15th. Then they started to be clear that they were planning a product hunt launch to try and generate hype around that. They even created one of these like wait list sign up, like notify me pages on the product hunt platform to try to get a, a list ready for launch day. So they did a lot to lead up to that launch. And then on launch day, they were they had their main kind of launch. They created a launch video for it. But they were so active on launch day, commenting multiple times, like posting multiple times to try to get people to get them to number one. And one thing I really liked was, I don't know how they did it. They must have prepared this animation video beforehand in a, in a more of a templated way that they could update it. But at the time they were number three and they posted this on LinkedIn. It was a really cool animation that was all about, hey, help, we're at three, help us get to number one. And so they did a lot on the day of kind of, keep that going and to try to get them, get people to get them to number one. They ended up getting at number three. Um, but then even the day after and today, they're continuing to talk about it. They've shared testimonials. They, they did like a summary of a launch in emojis. They did a lot around this launch. And uh, I think they did an awesome job of it. And it's a very cool example of it. it's not just a one and done. There's a ton of lead up and there's a lot that happens after. That's really interesting. While uh, you were showing showcasing the slides, at one point I saw a slide with the pricing tier. And one of the things that I struggle when I launched a SaaS product, and it is key in the launch itself, is understanding how to price your product. Because mm-hmm. if you price yourself too high, then, you know, this might... Even if you do everything else correctly, but it might lead to your product not getting adopted. Uh, at the same time, if you price yourself too low, then it's very, very difficult to increase the prices for a long while at mm-hmm. least, or it gets very quickly very unpopular. So determining what's the right pl- price to launch a product is kind of key and it's very difficult to do. I wonder what's your experience with that and if you have any framework that can help listeners think about pricing their product. Yeah, pricing is is a difficult one. It's it's very yeah, it's a very challenging thing to figure out, but I think that there are I'll, I can share a couple of ways that I think about pricing, a couple of tools I've used in the past and there's one kind of interesting approach that I found that someone else did. But pricing, four components to pricing is a, a slide my uh, friend Tamara made. But you know, when you're thinking about pricing, you have your pricing model. 
So that's going to be the, the the kind of core structure of your pricing, right? So do you do it? Is it, is it value-based pricing, usage-based pricing? You know, you're basing it based on, you know, cost plus. So first thing would be your pricing model, and then you have pricing metric. So this would be the unit of measurement. So if you have like a usage-based pricing model, then your unit of measurement may be based on something like, you know, the let's say, you know, Amazon, for example, like AWS, you know, they price very specifically based on usage, but that also helps you price your product based on value. Because if, you know, the usage is associated with generating value from your product, then allows you to, to, you know, that's how you could build up a more of a value-based pricing model. It could also be based on things like users. It could be based on, I use a platform called Super to help me build my website and they price a lot of times based on the number of sites you have. And so that's your pricing metric. And you can have multiple of those. And the more of those you have, the more complex it gets. Then you have packaging. So that's a lot of times, you know, if you have multiple tiers or packages of your that people can purchase, you know, for example, yeah, if you look at, you know, Vimeo, for example, or Loom, they have multiple different tiers. They have their pro plan, for example. And so you might have different packages that within them, you have different access to different features. And then you have price point. So that's the dollar amount that you're going to charge for each package for your, you know, if you have usage-based pricing based on every new site, for example, it's going to cost you X. So you figure out your price point. And I think a lot of times it's, this is a very strategic choice to make. Like, what is your pricing model going to be? What are your main pricing metrics that you're going to focus on? What, what, What different packages might you offer and what price point to put them at? And so it is a, it is, it's a challenging thing. A couple of ways that I've in the past tried to come up with what our pricing might be. Now, one thing to start is if you are in a market that is, there are other alternatives out there already, a pretty common thing is looking at how other things are priced within your market and, and kind of going with a similar model, for example, or similar pricing metrics. Like when I was at my last company, we had our pricing metrics were a little bit different than our competitors, our main competitors' pricing metric. And when we would get into sales cycles, it was sometimes it would be a benefit for people to go with us because our pricing metrics and how we structured our pricing was better for their organization than the competitor. But in other cases, the competitor was a better fit because you know the, the way that they structured their pricing was more you know cost-effective for the customer. We would also try to use those as differentiators to say like, we're priced this way. So that's going to allow you to do X, Y, Z a lot easier and scale in this way a lot easier. And they would try to do the opposite. And so, but if you have like a pretty established market, you can go out and look for, okay, what is the typical price point? Okay, well, do we want to be considered higher value? And so we can put a premium on the price or do we want to compete on price? And so we'll price it a little bit lower. Um, you know, do we not want to confuse people by having a completely different pricing model? So we want to have a similar pricing model to what already exists. That's an option there. But if you have a new product and you're trying to figure out a price point, one thing that has been helpful is, and I've used this, it's called the Van Westendorp sensitivity meter. And it's basically a, a methodology you can use to try to find your optimal price point. And so this is a template and I can share it with you. And this is a free thing. If anyone goes to my website, it's productivepmm.com and you can access this template. But really this is to do one of these, one of these tests or one of these analysis, you basically are submitting a, or putting out a survey to your ideal buyers, like your ideal customer, or if you have an existing customer base, you could put it out to those customers. If you're building a new product, for example, but you want to ask them four questions. 
So you want to present the product to them in some way, try to describe it. Maybe you want to list out. I, I know in my case, because I use this when I launched one of my, I, I have a, like an operating system I built on Notion for product marketers. And I, I did a study like this for when I was launching it. And so I did a quick explanation uh, video, basically describing the product and the value of it and pitching it a little. And then I asked them these four questions. So the first was, what price would you consider this product to be a bargain, a great buy for the money? And so what price would this be a bargain, a great buy for you? At what price would you consider the product to be so low that you would feel basically it wasn't a good quality? The third question then is at what price would you consider the product starting to get expensive, but not enough to rule it out, but you would have to give more thought to buying it. And then the fourth one is at what price would you consider the product to be so expensive that you just wouldn't consider buying it? And when you ask them these questions and I'm, you know, you basically end up with a spreadsheet like I have here with, you know, under great deal, too cheap, could justify too expensive. Those are the four categories. You have price points based on each person you asked. And then this actually just plots it out for you into a graph. And so you end up with a very similar graph every time. But what you have is this area in the middle. And this is represents your acceptable price range, right? This is the optimal price range that you could price your product. And if you go on the low end, so for example, what I'm looking at here, I can see the low end was $27. People had said the high end was $49. Now this isn't mine that I did. This is an example, but you could see here, it's like, okay, well, we could price this product at either $49 or $27 or somewhere in between. The idea being that the closer you get to the 27, the higher your conversion rate will be. Whereas if you want to go on the higher end, obviously you have to expect your conversion rate is going to be lower, but this is all within the acceptable range. This is a way where you could start to do a bit of research, market research on where you should price your product. So that's, that's one approach. Another that I found really interesting, this is a very different approach, but this is a, a cool example of putting a product out there, getting it out into the market and listening to buyers on, do they actually buy it? So I've seen people who do A-B tests on their website of they'll put a, a pricing page out there and they'll literally just A-B test it. And people, one person might get one price, one person might get the other. And they look at conversion rates and they, and they do the math there to figure out which one's optimal for them. I really like this example here from Steph Smith. And so she is a, a content creator. She created a core, or she is a, a creator. She, she does the a, a Andreessen Horowitz podcast. She is a very well-known creator. And she created a course called Doing Content Right. <clears throat> and I listened to her on this podcast, which was it's called Coffee and Pens. And she talked about her pricing approach for this launch. And the way that she did it is she, you could see very early in this first, there's a tweet here that I, I, I'm kind of highlighting. And in her tweet, she basically just said, I stumbled upon this 4,000 word outline. So she created an outline for this course, posted this tweet and said, if I finish it, is this something you'd pay $10 for? So she just put that out there. She got a lot of great feedback. And she was like, thanks so much, everyone. So that her, helped her also validate the idea for this product. And then she said, thanks for a few people nudging me to have more confidence to charge more. In this other tweet, she said, I'm going to price it at $10 for the first 30 orders, but increase it after. So what she did is when she finally announced this, she put it out at $10. After 30 people bought, she put it up to 15. And then for every 30 orders, she put it up by $5 increments every time. And at the time, what she was doing was she was like looking at conversion rates on her landing page of how many people actually converted to buy. And when she noticed that start to drop off to a level that she wasn't happy with anymore, she stopped it there and kept it at that price. 
And so it was a cool way for her to live test pricing. And she's changed it over time. I think at the time she stopped, it went up to 50 at one point and then it, I'm not sure where she stopped it, probably around 50. And then now it's up at a hundred or more. And so another learning that she had with this too was around, again, positioning. Because if you go out and you tell people, hey, I have an ebook and you position it as I created an ebook about content marketing, $10 is typically what people would probably pay for something like that. Whereas maybe if you position it as a course, or maybe if you position it more around, hey, I've created this resource, this, you know, this whatever that is going to help you save a hundred times, a hundred hours every month on content creation, that you position it quite differently and people are willing to pay more. So I thought that was a really cool example. And then the last thing I'll show here is just this idea of you can go out with a beta program and just be very clear that this is beta pricing. And so this example from Typeform, they launched a, a product called Formless. So they're saying during beta, your first 500 responses. So this is their live site. This is their pricing page. But they're very clear that during beta, they had their pro plan, which is free during beta. During beta, your first 500 responses are free. Additional responses are charged at $9. And then they talked about this other plan, like this other in their packaging. They have a pro plan and they have a brand plan. And they said that one's coming soon. So they're being very clear up front, like all of this might change. This is just during beta, but they're able to get people in. They're able to get a lot of feedback on potential pricing. And, and so this is a really, this is a cool approach too, to being able to just get something out there, get feedback right away, and then adjust pricing as you go. I love it. When, when I was doing beta for the launch of this product, we also enroll users for free until mm -hmm. beta launch. And then when we... When we launch it, you know, full fledged, then we started to to ask for for payments uh, for money, and that's like a good validation as well because our users uh, willing to stick around even when the product is paid. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, it's you have customers then, and then you know it's a very it's because it, they can see the value of the product they understand what they're going to get when they start to pay and then you ask them the question of are you going to stick around once we now that you have to pay this and it's a very good like when the rubber actually meets the road on whether your product is worth the price yeah that's how i think about product market fit basically like are users willing to stick around when you ask you know to pay for it and do you have uh, retention at that point i like the approach people take too when they when they say, hey, this is a beta program or, hey, I even haven't even launched this yet, but I, you need to pay for it. Like I know a lot of people when they say you're like, starting a product that might be a bit higher touch or something like that, you might get people to pay before you've even built it. But yeah, that's mu obviously much harder. I think, Jason, this has been an incredibly useful uh, episode. You gave us uh, so much knowledge practical examples, templates the listeners can take and apply directly to their own product. So really, I want to thank you so much for your generosity. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I love, I love, you know, talks like this. It's great. Just show examples and yeah, try to make it as practical as we can. So yeah, I hope it's, hope it's helpful for people. And thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. We will leave uh, all the links, uh, templates, uh, your newsletter, your uh, your class on Maven uh, that it's launching, I guess, again in March, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Next cohort happens in March. Uh, you can go there today and either sign up for the, the next cohort or join the waitlist as well. So 
either. Okay, and listeners got a taste of what they can expect. So highly exactly. recommended. And uh, for listeners, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Thanks. See ya. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It will be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.